This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway, in a brand new day, gotta let it go. Open the Voice Gate, Rewind and Rewatch, episode 46, covering Freedom Fight 2013 from the Curse Brooklyn Lyceum in New York on November 17, 2013. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You can find us on the Voices of Wrestling feed or on the Open the Voice Gate feed on all podcast platforms and applications. You can follow us on Twitter at Open Voice Gate. If you'd like to support the show, just click the link in the show notes. It'll take you to redcircle.com. Just click the red box that says sponsor this podcast, and you can set up a one-time or recurring donation. No requirement whatsoever, but I would like to thank our previous donors. I'm one of your hosts. It's your old pal, our Mike Spears, joined as always by my co-host and friend, Case Lowe. And Case, this was a show I was dreading when we started this prog- the, this whole entire project. I was expecting that maybe we got so busy that we would not have to watch this show, but buddy, we're in the Lyceum now. Yeah, this is definitely one that when we started this, and, and I knew we would hit this at some point. I was very committed to finishing this project once we started it. Did I imagine that when we started this in mid-March that there would be uh, just such an extreme amount of COVID still in the open? No, I did not. I was kind of hoping we'd uh, be on the downswing. It does not appear that we are that way, but... Yeah, this is, in a weird way, I guess an infamous Dragon Gate USA show. Like, again, it's one that I distinctly had in my memory from watching live and just knowing everything that was on this show from the jump. So we are now in the infamous Brooklyn Lyceum. This is, you know, after Gabe loses the ECW arena, after he loses BB King's, and after he loses the Ace Arena in Union City, New Jersey, they are stuck without an East Coast venue. You know, the only other times they had run outside of, of here, they had the the building last week that we talked about that they ran a few more times. We got one show left from that building. They tried a place for the anniversary show. That did not work out. And they obviously couldn't run the Meadowlands Convention Center in Secaucus, New Jersey. So they are at this building that I recently listened to an interview where Gabe did where he was talking about this building and how the venue only had one bathroom and that included uh, one bathroom for the talent and for the fans. And it was, you know, I, I believe Gabe noted a pretty small bathroom at that. And it's just one of those things. Like, you look at this show, and we've got timeline stuff to cover, but I want to make this point right off the bat. This show happens in November of 2013. And you turn this show on, it is a standard definition broadcast that 
is almost pitch black at times. I mean, we made fun of, like, I remember the show in Milwaukee in 2011, Akira Tozawa does a run-in where you literally can't see Akira Tozawa because it's so dark. This is not much better because this is the entire show. I was watching this. I had it projected on my TV. I was sitting across the room, and there are times where it's like, oh, my God, like, I don't even, I don't know what's happening on the TV right now because this picture is so inexcusably awful. (laughs) And it's something, so the Brooklyn Lyceum is a really old venue. I think it actually has, like, a heritage founding that it used to be, like, a public baths back when public baths were a thing. So the fact that there was one bathroom there at a former public bath, you're kind of like, oh, okay. And the lighting thing, just using overhead lights to not think, hey, I maybe need to get a light tracing that the windows are blacked out here. So it's just a very unpleasant visual experience. No, it's the continued, uh, I don't know if I want to call it laziness, but just the the degradation of the Drangit USA brand in July of 2009, they're talking about this premium wrestling product with the Golden Circle tickets and bonus matches. There's not a pre-show. It's it's bonus matches. Everything on the show is premium with backstage inserts from Larry Dallas and Chikarsen and translated promos from the Japanese talent. And here, there's nothing premium, premium about this. I mean, it, it's it's borderline insulting to an extent, not to mention that the way we're watching this show is through one of the old... I, this is the... WWE Live VOD feed, and Mike and I for a long time were keeping track of the DVD previews that they were showing, some backstage segments that they did. There's none of that on this show. What they did, I you know, I believe starting from here through you know the next handful of Evolve shows was when they would upload the video on demand after the iPay-per-view. It is just the iPay-per-view rip. There's no editing. They didn't cut anything out. This file was much, much longer than any of the others that we had watched up this to this point because they didn't edit out intermission. They didn't edit out any of the long transition periods in between matches. At this point, it's a lazy product, and, and I was following the promotion at the time because it was something new and exciting for me. I was just getting into independent wrestling, but if I was a fan that had been on board since 2009, I would have found this product to be insulting. Yeah, yeah, and I think that this is probably our two different experiences coming to play because I remember this. I'm like, yeah, no, this is why I checked out at the tail end of the promotion because it used to feel like an event. Now it feels like like this was a venue that no shade thrown towards them, but this is like very much a Beyond Wrestling venue. And at the time, Beyond was running a better venue with, with Fed yeah. Music in, in Rhode Island. I mean, God, can you imagine a Drangit USA show there? That would have been incredible. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It, it's just something that you watch this and you kind of come away with just depression in a way. You're like you're like, oh no, this is. I, I I would have to wonder, and I would love to like talk to people that you know have a big memory of working within the company and saying, at this point, did you think that DGUSA was pretty much done for? Because you watch the show, and that's the big foreboding thing that comes out of it. Two Japanese talents on the show. It will get even more dire on the next set of shows. But before we really get into Freedom Fight 2013, we're going to go to Japan. We're going to talk about Dragon Gate. There is a lot of stuff that we're going to try to get through in a short amount of time. But just to mirror what is going on in Japan and the excitement and the potential in the air 
of Dragon Gate Japan to compare that to Dragon Gate USA is, is almost depressing, but we're going to go ahead and do it. And we're going to start in August of 2013. Last time we talked about Japan, which was on the fourth anniversary show, we mentioned that it was Kobe World. Shima lost his Open the Dreamgate title after 18 months to Shingo Takagi. It felt like the start of a new era coming out of World. And we begin in August of 2013. We could do an entire 90-minute episode of timeline stuff on August of 13. Instead, we're going to try to get through it as quick as possible. I'm going to throw some bullet points at Mike as to everything that happened in this month, and I will have Mike react to the following. Because on August 1st, the main event in Corken Hall, a losing unit disbands, loser loses mask or hair, five versus four handicap, two-count rules match where Yamato, Akira, Tozawa, BB Hulk, KZ, and Mondai Ryu defeat Shingo Takagi, Cyber Kong, Super Shenlong, and Chihiro Tamanaga. Mad Blanky ends Akatsuki, and then after the match, Yamato turns on Akira Tozawa and proclaims himself to be the leader of Mad Blanky. Uh, before Mike responds, I'm going to transition to the Cork and Hall show at the end of this month, the August 23rd show, where after turning on Akira Tozawa, after ending Akatsuki, Yamato continues his reign of dominance, Shingo Takagi loses the Open the Dreamgate title in his first defense after a box attack and a Frankensteiner of the Almighty in 27 minutes and 27 seconds. Uh, Mike, this destroyed people's brains at the time. What is your memory... <laughs> of the reaction to not only Akatsuki uh, disbanding, which I think people expected, but Shingo losing in his first defense, which I don't think anybody expected. Well, Akatsuki was going to disband. Akatsuki was pretty much a DOA unit. It never really got out of the gates. This was the unit that Jay famously said, oh yeah, this is Shingo, the high school jock bully, in his Trans Am with Yamato in the front seat <laughs> and shoving Shihiro Tomonaga and Super Shenlong 3 in the back seat and making them like have to like be cramped up because the, uh, the seniors would have the seats all the way back, of course. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, this, is, this was one of those matches that was lost for a while, though I know that we refound it. And just kind of a wild one, especially because coming out of this, Super Shenlong unmasks and then has one of the longest names for like about a month the former super sin long three yosuke wanabe which is really pleasant to say a lot and of course like this is the big transition for both matt blanky and yamato because before this yamato never really left the battleship gimmick that was always kind of still a part of him in a way but he had pretty much a full-fledged gimmick change he became the Almighty, which is his gimmick to this day, which was basically, he used to have a mirror that he come out and stare at, that he was basically just self-absorbed and thought that he was omniscient and omnipresent. And he had the Frankensteiner of the Almighty, which became like his big flash pen and defeating Shingo Takagi, becoming a zero-key champion, which is a big thing. If someone doesn't get a key on that belt, then you're seen as kind of a failure. I mean, Ryo Saito never really recovered from that, right? So it's just one of those things that you like watching this. And of course, there's one other big thing that you did not mention that happened on the tw on the August 23rd uh, Corkin. Yes. Well, there, there were two secondary matches that I wanted to mention real quick because they kind of tie into one another. Uh, August 1st, open the Brave Gate Championship match where Masato Yoshino defends the belt against Naruki Doi. 
And then August 23rd, a four versus four Nanawa elimination match with Matt Blanky and World One International, where Hulk, KZ, Mondai Ryu, and Uha Nation defeated Naruki Doi, Masada Yoshino, Ricochet, and Sachi Hoko Boy. Were those the matches you were referring to? Somewhat, but I think I might be off on my date about something. I, it, I believe you're looking ahead a month. We, we will get there. Uh, that's right. That's right. That, that's on me. But after the Shingo versus Yamato match, all of the units enter the ring. World won the Jimmys and Team Veteran. Yamato begins to provoke them, and these translations, I should note, come from the iHeartDG web archive. Yamato began to provoke the units, but he was interrupted by the Millennials theme music. Eita... That's it, Case. That's what I was referring to. <laughs> there, there we go. Ata and T-Hawk reintroduced themselves. T-Hawk said he was no longer Tomahawk or Mr. PP or Tomokamai. He was a new man. They introduced the debuting UT. Monday Ryu had no idea what the whole Millennials thing was. He just recognized the kid that ran away from his debut match with the International Problem Dragon. He charged, but UT took him down with an arm lock. T-Hawk pulled him off before warning everyone that the Millennials Millennials were all well-schooled in the strong Lucha Libre style. And Mike, that leads us to August 30th, the Millennials landing in Japan. This stuff is uploaded on the Dragon Gate Network under the You Were Young Then section. This is technically UT's debut. August 30th, T-Hawk, Eita, and UT defeat Masato Yoshino, Ryotsu Shimizu, and Shihiro Tamanaga in a minute and 30 seconds before having a rematch that they win in just over 10 minutes. This is huge stuff. This changes the game in Japan. Well, especially because Millennials was the first generational unit since the generational war that happened in 2009. So the big thing about Millennials were, if, and it was even a part of their logo, if you were younger than 1990, if you're born after 1990, they will be friendly to you. However, if you are older, if you're born in 1989 or before that, you are considered their enemy. And it kind of made them as like a tweener faction that would verge on heel towards most of the veterans. And then with like the rookies and all that, it was just, they just kind of were like the same. But they really kind of just were like this tweener unit out of the gates. Felt like a really hot act initially. Really big kind of way that they were pushed as we talk about the fall of 2013. And then we'll... We won't get into this, but the way that things ended up for the Millennials was not as strong as it started. No, actually something that if you're if you're listening to this, you're going to want to catch our Cork and Hall review, uh, the weekly update that we're doing, because I have a topic on the Millennials that I'm going to approach Mike with. I have a, a question that pertains to some of them. Also, on the August 30th show, there was a singles match booked between Mad Blanky's Uha Nation and Akira Tozawa, but Uha Nation said Akira Tozawa was one of, one of his best friends and he refused to fight him, so Mad Blanky turned on Uha Nation, leading to an eight-man tag with Yamato, Hulk, Ryu, and KZ defeating Tozawa, Uha, Shingo Takagi, and Cyber Kong. In your main event, tucked away on a Kobe Sambo Hall show, Kness and Dragon Kid defeat Naruki Doi and Ricochet to win the Open the Twin Gate belts. How good does that sound, Mike? I mean, you know how I feel about Die Fly. <laughs> Die Fly is like, other than Arayawa, this is like one of my sleeper favorite teams in Dragon System history. And I don't really remember this match. No, like, I, don't, I, I don't remember it at all. I was shocked when I saw that and the results because I really have no memory of it. Yeah, 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 but... Sadly, Die Fly would never really have a long run of championship belts anywhere. 
No, they would not. Yamada was put to the test in the beginning of September, though. He was going to make his first defense of the Open, the tw- uh, the, tw- the Dreamgate, rather, the Open, the Dreamgate title on September 12th, 2013. This was the kickoff of the Summer Adventure Tag League as well. And this show featured Uha Nation defeating Ryotsu Shimizu, Ricochet defeating Yosuke Watanabe. In the Summer Adventure Tag League, uh, Gamma and Kness defeated Kanda and Susumu. And then your semi-main event, Block A Summer Adventure Tag League 2013. Akira Tozawa and Shingo Takagi, well, they wrestle Masao Yoshino and Naruki Doi. And, like, what happens in this match? Oh, it's a no contest. If I'm right, Mad Blanky runs in partway through. It is a no contest, as not only does Mad Blanky run in, but Naruki Doi turns on his partner, Masao Yoshino. This was the turn, Matt? This was the turn. I thought the, the turn, turn happened later. No. Well, it made sense. It made sense, yeah. This is the turn. Yoshino takes a Bakatari sliding kick with a chair to the face, and Doi leaves World 1 International and joins Mad Blanky and joins Yamato in the main event as he defends the belt against Ryo Saito in what is an incredible, incredible big match Saito performance. He is a performer Mm -hmm. that annoys me to no end, but when he turns it on like this, he is an incredible wrestler. And I think that's why I thought that turn was happening later, Case, because I remember this match from the Scorkin. I remember this Yamato defense, his first defense, and you're absolutely right. Like, serious Saito coming out there against the Almighty at, like, peak, just pretentious as hell Yamato. It, it, It rocks. It's one of, like, I think it's one of Yamato's better Dreamgate champ uh, championship matches of this heel almighty run. I completely agree. This is a very special Cork and Hall show. It just feels hot. It feels fresh. And I think that's really interesting compared to the Dreamgate USA shows that we've been watching where you have all this new talent in Japan. You know, Tiok and Ata, I think to some extent got over in America. I think the audiences, even if they didn't know who they were coming in, they really appreciated them by the time they left but they come to Japan, and you don't have to look any further than September 28th at Kobe Samba Hall, the finals of the Summer Adventure Tag League, which at, at that point, I believe it was Kness that got injured, so they vacated the Twin Gate belts. And yeah. T-Hawk and Ata, month into their Japan landing, they beat BB Hulk and Yamato to win the Tag League and to win the Twin Gate belts. Yep, and the success of Millennials will just keep on going. Indeed, it does. And now, well, let's, let's, let's pause there for one second. August and September 2013, an absurd time in Drangate. I mean, if we were ever going to pick up and do some timeline shows like Jay used to do on the iHeartDG site, it really seems like there would need to be an extended focus on this time period. And we've talked, you know, Drangate has these hot periods. They had a, a handful in 2020 where we'd be like, my God, like this is, all of these shows are exciting. The matches are good. And then... I think that stuff was so crazy and so new that it overshadowed October and November a little bit. But these months are equally as crazy as you see on the 10-10-2013 Cork and Hall show, where the stuff that really matters here is a six-man tag with Don Fuji, Masaki Mochizuki, and Super Shisa defeating Eita, T-Hawk, and Yuti in a violent fucking display of aggression. (laughs) It's the only way I can describe it. (laughs) UT is put into the most sickening Boston crab in this match. His feet basically go back to touch his head. It's disgusting. 
And then the show ends with not only a five-on-three handicap match where Tozawa, Shingo, and Uha beat Hulk, Kong, KZ, Mandai Ryu, and Naruki Doi. But then the main event, more craziness in the middle of Korokan Hall. Yamato, two months after defeating Shingo Takagi, loses his belt to Masato Yoshino. Monster Express wins the Open the Dreamgate title by way of Masato Yoshino. Yeah, and just uh, to interject here real quickly... This was like the whole th- lead up. I think Monster Express formed after Yoshino won the title. If I, I'm right. I, they they technically were named four days before on the Hakata Star Lane show. I skipped over that, that on my notes sense. by accident. But yeah, so right, well, this was their Tokyo debut. Right. Yeah. So I mean, they're coming in real strong. They're positioned as the super babyface unit. You have Tozawa and Shingo Takagi that have been longtime friends and compatriots. You have Uha Nation, who is Tozawa's best friend. You have Masato Yoshino, who is friendly with everyone else, but he's joining up because he was portrayed and wanted to go against Naruki Doi. He brings along his best friend, Sachihoko Boy, and then, of course, Ricochet. And this is, like, the period of Ricochet I remember the most because I remember, like, the gear very... The, like, the gear that he wore on this Freedom Fight show as, like, that's the Ricochet I remember. is like the black and red short... Or black and orange shorts Ricochet. I had it in my notes, like, oh, that's the gear that I like from Ricochet. I mean, this is yeah, this is right around the time that, again, like, not only am I following Drang at USA, but Monster Express, finding out that Tozawa, Shingo, and Ricochet were teaming together in Japan, I was like, well, shit, I gotta check that out. You know, that sounds like something I would really like, and, and sure enough, here I am eight years later, seven and a half years later, talking about it now, because it it was stuff that that really resonated with me at the time. And plus, towards the end of October, on October 26th to be exact, Kobe Samba Hall, you have an influx of foreign talent on this show with T-Hawk. In the second match on this show, T-Hawk teams with Flamita and Rocky Lobo to wrestle Shima, Gamma, and Yosuke Watanabe. And then later on in the show, Akira Tozawa teams with Anthony Nice, and they defeat Genki Horiguchi and Jimmy Susumu. And through this tour, Anthony Nice ended up in the Dragon Gate program, I believe, until 2015. I have to go through my programs and check, but he was like listed as a member of the Dragon Gate roster much longer. He was an official Monster Express member, which is wild to think about also considering the Premier Athlete brand. And yeah, your main man, Rocky Lobo, makes his debut. Look, this, uh, it, it's amazing. You go back and read some of the writing at this time. It's like, well, like, who's Drangate going to use? Is it going to be Flamita or Rocky Lobo? They probably can't afford the two plane tickets from Mexico. And Rocky Lobo, I think, does two tours. I think he's over the beginning of 2014. And Flamita becomes one of the most decorated foreigners they ever had. And I miss him. And I'm happy he's getting a steady paycheck and Ring of Honor. But I really wish he was back in Drangate. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And... Here's the thing about Flamita at this time. 19 years old. Absurd. He's nine- I, I mean, I, I went back recently and watched some early Flamita. I was watching like 2014 stuff. And I mean, not only does he have no muscle on him, especially compared to now where he just sucks protein shakes down just all day and night. I mean, that's the only thing he does if you're friends with him on Facebook like I am. Dude loves the gym, loves his protein shakes. But just, uh, uh, I don't want to call him a revolutionary flyer, but... There's nothing like watching a 20-year-old Flamita go through the air. It's He was incredible, and it makes sense that he became what he became. Oh, absolutely. And you, you see how he kind of exploded. He was someone that initially, when he came to Dragon Gate, he was an exciting 
wrestler, and then he very quickly probably became one of the 50 best wrestlers in the world in that time period, solely through his dragon things, and like the flam fly and all the stuff he was able to pull off, it just was, just like takes your breath away. So the Millennials make their big show debut on November 3rd, 2013, Gate of Destiny from the Osaka Bodymaker Coliseum. Uh, this show, Dave watched, he has a review of it and one of the observers around this time period. The big stuff to look at here, the eight-man tag match with Shiba, who was Kotoka doing the Shimasito gimmick, essentially. that That is... I would say not consequential to Drangit USA, so I skipped over it At for all. now. <laughs> um, but Shiba, Subasa, Shima, and Masaki Mochizuki teamed up. They defeated the Millennials of Flamita, Rocky Lobo, UT in the debuting Yosuke Santa Maria. This is where the Exotico gimmick comes from. And then also on the show, four big title matches with Genki Horiguchi retaining the Brave Gate belt over Anthony Nice. Ada and T-Hawk beating Drankit and Kness to become the official Twin, Twin Gate champions after being the interim Twin Gate champions from the Summer Adventure Tag League. And then your final two matches, Hulk, Cyberkong, and Yamato of Mad Blanky defeat Tozawa, Shingo, and Uha of Monster Express. And Masato Yoshino retains the Dreamgate belt over Naruki Doi in a match that I remember not being crazy about, but Dave gave it four and a half stars. Yeah, it's weird about uh, Yoshino and Doi singles matches, right? Like... I, I think I'm with you. I kind of come away with, from a lot of them a little bit underwhelmed. And I feel like this is fine when I watched it. I mean, I was much more into the Triangle Gate match. The Triangle Gate match rocked. I, I would say it's one of the weirdly underrated Triangle Gate matches because it's not even yeah. one that sticks out in my mind. But I, I had the show on recently, and I don't, I don't know why. Maybe I was trying to watch the Nice stuff, but I kept it on for that Triangle Gate match and was just like, holy shit. Like, I... I don't remember this match at all. This match is absurdly good. Well, if you look at the match, you have Hulk and Yamato, who are right now, this is pre tile run Hulk, so he's still with it. Yamato is kicking on all cylinders as the Almighty. If you want to talk, like, I can't understate how much going from Battleship to Almighty pretty much just reset his trajectory in a way. Like, And they knew that because they immediately strapped him up, and they took the belt away from Shingo, who just ended Shima's the longest ring in reign in Dragon Gate history for the Dreamgate. So you have like that. Cyber Kong is best in these matches. And then you have Tozawa and Shingo who have like just insane chemistry and Uha. And it's just it was like just a blast of it. And it's like only and they go twenty five minutes. Like that or twenty four minutes and five seconds. It's an insane match. It's worth going out of your way for. We will close our Japan talk with the November seventh, twenty thirteen Cork and this show was notable because it featured the return of the key hunting four-way match. This was a staple <laughs> in kind of late era Toriumon into early era Dragon Gate, but they hadn't done one in probably eight years. I mean, I don't I don't think they did any after 2005, and I'm not even sure they did any in 2005. It might have just been the end of 2004, but it's a four-way match where T-Hawk defeated Akira Tozawa, BB Hulk, and Jimmy Susumu, and with that, he got a Dreamgate match later on in the show, uh, we'll talk about that in just a second. The semi-main event, though, the six-on-five handicap match with BB Hulk, Cyber Kong, KZ, Mondai Ryu, Naruki Doi, and Yamato defeating the Monster Express team of Akira Tozawa, Shingo Takagi, Sachi Hoko Boy, Anthony Nice, and Mike Seidel. I forgot Mike Seidel was, was over at this time. He comes over in, like, September, and actually... 
Uh, when Masato Yoshino retires this summer, you will be able to read some of Mike Seidel's thoughts about his first tour in Japan and teaming with Masato Yoshino uh, in an article I'm working on for VoicesOfWrestling.com. But he comes over in like September and is primarily just in the dojo and working dark matches. I think he only works shows that air. It's the Kobe Sambo Hall show, I think, where Nice debuts. I think he's in a dark match there. And then this mm-hmm. show. But most of his stuff is either dojo work or non-televised appearances. He makes his Cork and Hall debut here, and then the main event, and an epic match between two guys that always had epic singles matches. Masato Yoshino retains the Dreamgate belt over T-Hawk. Yeah, great Cork. And uh, just so that I, I realize that we're trying to keep this short, the, the key hunting matches basically are one of the turnbuckle pads has the key underneath it. You're only able to pull three. If you pull... If you don't get a key in your three attempts of pulling a turnbuckle pad, you are eliminated from the match. So it has stakes in that way. And for people who are wondering why Mad Blanky had so many handicap matches, it was because everyone always made comments about how shit Mondai Ryu was, so he didn't count as a real wrestler. Which is a good policy that I, I kind of think they should <laughs> continue to enact. So final closing thoughts on Japan from August through November. Mike, this was one of the craziest periods the company ever had correct oh oh absolutely we managed to talk about it in 20 minutes i'm actually kind of impressed with us here well because this is i mean i I, you know i don't know what we're doing after this project entirely but i mean god we i mean uh, august of 2013 alone is like a multi-part podcast series it's unbelievable everything that happens in that month and and i knew it was either rushed through it or this will become its own episode, and I don't have the time to do that right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 we, for everyone's sake, I, I don't think we have a time limit on Red Circle, but we don't need to be t- uh, like that. As much as I would love to talk about 2013, and especially like the Akatsuki versus Mad Blanky two count mask or hair loser must suspend match, it's just we'll be here all night. Well, well, let me say this: I don't know what Mike's talking about in terms of this match being found, as far as I know, that Mad Blanky versus Akatsuki unit disbands match, I have watched it once in my entire life, and it was not when it aired, it was a little bit after, because I think I started really following during the Yamato versus Shingo Dreamgate match, so I, I would have not seen that Corkin. I've seen this match one time, it's the most elusive match in Dragon System footage. I know we have listeners that have perhaps some hard drives, sitting around some files on those hard drives. If you have that match, uh, shoot us a DM, please, because I would love to rewatch that. It, it's a nuts match. I think I might have it, Case. I think, yeah, but yeah, because we talked about it on the old show. Because I was the one who found the match. I was like, hey, guys, here's the Akatsuki versus uh, Mad Blanky Disbands match. Well, I will be in touch with you then after the show, Mike Spears, because I <laughs> have not seen this match. I'll have to see which bit. computer I have it on, but I know I've had this match at one time. I have not seen that match in a very long time, and it's one of my favorite matches that Gate ever did. Speaking of favorites, speaking of high points, the one other thing I want to talk about before we get to Gate USA is August 30th and August 31st of 2013 is PWG Battle of Los Angeles, and... I really wanted to spend a minute talking about these shows. One, the influx of Dragon USA talent around this time period that I think is very interesting to look at on this show. And two, I've got some opinions on the second night of this tournament. But real quick, the night one results were Anthony Nice losing to ACH. So ACH advances. Brian Cage defeating Tommaso Ciampa. 
uh, Mike, you'll enjoy this match uh, for comedy reasons. Drake Younger defeats Joey Ryan. That was a first-round match of the 2013 Battle of Los Angeles, and then things get better from there as it's Johnny Gargano defeating Willie Mack, Kevin Steen defeating Chuck Taylor, Kyle O'Reilly defeating Trent, Michael Elgin defeating Rich Swan, and Roderick Strong defeating A.R. Fox. That takes us to night two of the tournament, August 31st, 2013. Mike, I think this is the single greatest independent wrestling show I have ever seen. Do you have any memory of this, Bola? Well, yeah, Kyle, Kyle O'Reilly wins it, and he goes through a war to get there because he has a long match of ACH, then he has Drake Younger, who they kind of do Drake's rules when he was around there, and then he had to go up against Mike Elgin, who was getting incredibly heavily pushed in PWG at this time. A fascinating list of wrestlers that O'Reilly had to beat if you know anything about just their backstage life. ACH, Drake, and Michael Elgin is a real murderer's row of personality, is it not? I mean, it, it's various people that I think at one time Chuck Taylor has been very mad at, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so this is Bola Night 2. It opens with Drake Younger defeating Brian Cage in an absurdly dangerous seven-minute head drop fest. And then from there, we go to Johnny Gargano defeating Kevin Steen, Michael Elgin defeating Roderick Strong, and really the match that everyone came away talking about, Kyle O'Reilly defeating ACH. Also on this show, the semifinals of Elgin defeating Gargano and O'Reilly defeating Drake. The semi-main event is Adam Cole and the Young Bucks against A.R. Fox, Rich Swan, and Candice LeRae in a match that finished in my top 10 matches of 2013. This is... I think it's one of the best matches the Young Bucks have ever had, and you know that is saying a lot coming from me. This match is just hidden gem is not even the right word. It's no one talks about this match, and I think it's one of the best matches they ever had. And then the night concludes with O'Reilly winning Bola, defeating Michael Elgin, and then after the show, the Young Bucks and Adam Cole run in. They beat down Kyle O'Reilly. Candice LeRae tries to make the save. They beat down Candice LeRae. Unfortunately, Joey Ryan comes out. They beat up Joey Ryan because they're on the right side of history. And then Kevin Steen comes from the announcer's table. And instead of making the save, he package pile drives Candice LeRae. And the Mount Rushmore of wrestling is born. One of my favorite angles in the history of professional wrestling. It was so good because right after that, then they immediately got a box of t-shirts out and started selling them. <laughs> uh, which... I, look, I don't think I've bought a wrestling shirt in five years at this point. I don't. I certainly don't wear many of the ones that I own at one point. I still wear my original Mount Rushmore PWG t-shirt all the time. I love that shirt. And, and they cut a great backstage promo, like when PWG would do promos and they do like this, where Kevin Steen keeps on cursing and then apologizes because he knows that the Bucks are, you know, are good Christian boys. Then he calls himself the champion of the universe, which is very apropos given his next seven years. And then it's just like... One of those things that when PWG decided to have an angle and they committed to an angle, it usually was a really solid one in PWG, and Matt Rushmore's like the best example of it. Go to your High Spots Network, fire this show up, watch it from start to finish. I, I mean, I haven't seen it in a few years at this point. I'm assuming it all holds up. I really hope it does because, my God, do I love this show. And to me, this has always been my point when people talk about the PWG boom. This is the first show William Regal attended. There's photos of him backstage mm -hmm. with O'Reilly and ACH after their match. To me, this was the peak of PWG. I mean, they have a great show in October that, that we don't really have time to talk about. 
but it's all diminishing returns from this, and we're a year away from the return of the three-night bola and AJ Styles and Kenny Omega and Liger later on down the line. We're, you know, a year plus away from all of that. And to me, Bola 2013 was like the end of an era for PWG in terms of after this, it really became the Cool Kids Club. And that was great and that was awesome and we got a bunch of good matches out of it. But Bola 2013 for me will always be the peak of that promotion. And I would say that that era began with Tazawa's tour. You know, oh, absolutely. Like, you had about this three-year period of that because I was looking at the rest of this card case as we are talking about it. You kind of had the formation of best friends yes. in that trio's match with the despicable Joey Ryan. And it is just one of those things that, like, you look at this, a lot of things come out of this. Like, I was actually recorded a rant for the EE Patreon yesterday about my thesis on independent wrestling and why PWG was and how it won't be and all of that. And you, like, look at this, and you look, like, at, at the names on these things, and... In a lot of ways, the names get stronger after this, but you also have like the idea of like this is where Reseda kind of becomes that place in America is from the show. Yeah, I I miss this era of PWG, and again, that's probably me gatekeeping a little bit, but it's just it's just not the same after this, and that's okay because I mean even the next show, which yeah, I can I can throw the results in here real quick. Matt Rushmore on October nineteenth, two thousand thirteen, where you had Kevin Steen defeating ACH in, a, in an awesome match. The true birth of the best friends, Chuck and Trent defeat AR Fox and Rich Swan. A four way match with Drake, Nice, uh, Cage, and Ciampa. That match was wild. Gargano defeats Roderick Strong. The Bucks defeat Candice LeRae and, jo- Candice LeRae and Joey Ryan, and Adam Cole defeats. Kyle O'Reilly to retain the PWG title. I it's just it's unbelievable and and we'll reference PWG in another minute here as they directly uh, influence the booking of this Dragon USA show. Uh but before that I think we have to get to some newswire notes if that's okay with you. Yep, let's get to it. So November 7th, Gabe Sapolsky announces what was the original card for Freedom Fight 2013. I did this to you last week, Mike. When Genki Horiguchi was pulled off the show, Gabe had to change the show. This time, we not only lose Horiguchi, but we will gain Chris Hero. But had that not happened, Freedom Fight 2013 would have been Johnny Gargano versus Masaki Mochizuki, Ricochet versus Anthony Nice, Trent Barretta versus Rich Swan. Genki Horiguchi and Jimmy Susumu against the Bravado Brothers, an evolved title match between AR Fox, Chuck Taylor, John Davis, and Caleb Conley, in a non-title match at the time, non-title, the Young Bucks against Jigsaw and Fire Ant. Interesting show. To you say know, the least. I think that the top ends, uh, I won't get too much in my thoughts on what the card we got, you know, there's some stuff there that I find very interesting, but I don't know. Having Ginky there changes a lot of things and not having Hero. Like, the, it was so much easier last week that you'd want to watch the show from the, uh, the the proposed show. But from this one, I'm a little bit conflicted. Like, well, what, how, how's your opinion on what was the original plan and what it came to be? Like, which one would you want to watch? Just not not having watched the show, just you get the two cards put side by side. Which one are you taking? I want the original card. I want Gargano versus Mochizuki in this building because I think, you know, Gabe's whole selling point yeah. of the Lyceum was, well, when the crowd is up, it's kind of like a fight club thing, which 
Yes and no. I mean, it certainly had its detractions that maybe prevented it from being like a fight club thing. <laughs> but Gargano versus Mochizuki probably could have achieved the atmosphere that he was looking for. We got Ricochet versus Nice. We got Trent versus Swan. Horiguchi and Susumu versus the Bravados sounds like a fascinating match one way or another. Uh, that Evolve Championship match, I mean, that's four top guys to some extent. I mean, that's a very interesting match. And I think Bucks versus Jigsaw and Fire Ant would have been really, really interesting. Yeah, yeah, because especially I assume what happened after the three-way tag would have happened there with uh, Fire Ant and Jigsaw. So you'd have had an angle coming out of that way. Yeah, I think you've convinced me. I think you've convinced me. Well, things change as on November 9th, 2013, at 109 Central Standard Time in the morning, the official PWG Twitter account tweets out, Chris Hero makes his return at All-Star Weekend 10. And we'll talk about these All-Star Weekend 10 shows next week or the week after, because I, I actually think they're very important to what would become of Dragon Gate USA. But I remember waking up, I had, at this point, I'm such a PWG obsessive, and because they don't ever tweet unless they're announcing match lineups, I had the alerts on my phone and I woke up to this notification, and I was baffled. I did not know what was going on. But on November 9th, PWG announces Hero. On November 11th, Gabe confirms that Hero will wrestle on the Brooklyn iPay-Per-View. And then on November 12th, he announces that Gargano versus Hero has been signed. And that makes uh, the whole card shift. So now AR Fox will end his feud with the Young Bucks as he teams with Masaki Mochizuki on this show as well. And then Gabe says Caleb Conley and Andrew Everett will enter the tag scene as they take on Jigsaw and Fire Ant. And I believe this is the final time that Caleb Conley and Andrew Everett team. So uh, a nice run of two matches that I thought were both very good. <laughs> and then they never team again. And that is just such 2013, 2014 Dragon Gate USA. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just something that, and it's kind of something that, it's going to be so weird in twenty later 2011, 2022, when the Indies might possibly restart. Like, the idea of Hero coming back was such, like, a earth-shaking thing that, like, getting the notification saying uh, at All-Star Weekend 10, Chris Hero makes his return would have been, like, the most, like, brain-scratching thing, especially if you weren't someone that, like— at this time, were you an observer person, or were you keeping up of this uh, whatsoever? I, I, I'm, I'm glad you asked me that, because I was going to make that point. I was definitely reading news with a Z sites. I don't think I subscribed to the Observer until probably early 2014. So, I, I mean, I was an NXT watcher, because NXT was on Hulu at this point. I was watching NXT from the moment it transitioned away from FCW, so... You know, my introductions to Pac and Hero were through the NXT program, and then I quickly realized, like, oh, these guys are incredible, and they've done stuff all around the world that I would like to watch, but I was stunned, because uh, by this point, it's late 2013, I am 14 years old, CM Punk is my idol, I'm a super smarmy, smarky fan on the internet, going like, they gotta push Cassius Ono, I mean, come on, where's his push? <laughs> And then for him to just disappear into the ether of NXT and be a free agent like that, it was a huge deal. I mean, this really registered with me as like, oh my God, like, Hero's going to come back to the indies. And he opened up a pro wrestling tee store. I bought, I think, two of his t-shirts that I used to wear to school all the time. Obviously, people loved that. Um, and then I remember 
at this point, I'm going to Ring of Honor shows, and, and I saw Hero versus Adam Cole at a Ring of Honor show. I was 15 years old. My mom drove me, and she still, to this day, asked me how Chris Hero's doing because he made such a good impression on her that night. I mean, that's pretty much the Chris Hero story, though. <laughs> oh, my God. If, I mean, Chris Hero, you spend 10 minutes talking to him at the merch table. You will think you guys are friends for life. He is one of the nicest humans I've ever met. Or one of the best merch workers, you know? It's, it's, it's the best. I don't know him personally, <laughs> so I'm not going to make any determinations on who he is, but when I've talked to him, very nice person. Yeah, um, but that was also... merch table culture is bad, except for when Chris Hero does it. And, like, I, I, at the time, Sinclair was selling these Ring of Honor compilation DVDs, and that was my thing. I mean, that's how I watched old, like, Gabe-era Ring of Honor. Oh, yeah, like the year two, year three exactly. DVDs. Exactly, so... Yeah. I, I had... The Jimmy Jacobs comp, which I remember I had Jimmy Jacobs sign at my first Ring of Honor show, and he was super nice, and he was he was super nice to my mom. I've always said that about Jimmy Jacobs. Like, he went out of his way to just be a really kind person. Again, merch table culture is bad, but it's good when it happens to me. Um, I had a CM Punk comp DVD that I went to a Wizard World in Chicago to have CM Punk sign where he not only complimented the DVD, this is real case low lore, Mike Spears. I don't know if you know the story. I'm ready for it. I went I'm to, ready for this. I was 14 years old. My mom drove me to Wizard World in Chicago specifically to stand in line to meet CM Punk. He did a Q&A beforehand that I went to. I asked him a question at the Q&A. Just put yourself in my mind for a second. I am all in on indie wrestling. I love CM Punk. What do you think I asked this man in front of a live audience at a Q&A? I'm guessing you asked him about Trey Edge music. <laughs> a fair guess, but no. I went up to the microphone and I asked CM, Paul, CM Punk, do you have a favorite Gabe Sapolsky memory? <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That, 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 that's actually the right question to ask anyone who's worked with Gabe Sapolsky, to be honest. And Punk said his favorite uh game memory is they were working an fip show where somebody oh, I know. <laughs> somebody screwed up the music cue and all of a sudden gabe starts slinging cigarette ashtrays into the wall and going, <laughs> it's a fucking dvd product <laughs> god damn it <laughs> <laughs> and then later that day he was doing the autograph signing i bought my ticket so he could sign the cover of my summer of punk roh compilation dvd i went up to him he complimented the dvd and he complimented my t-shirt, and it wasn't a straight-edge t-shirt, it wasn't a CM Punk t-shirt, it was a Mr. 1859 Cliff Compton t-shirt that oh, CM God. Punk liked. And not only this, Mike, not only this, not only did CM Punk like my t-shirt, but I go on Twitter that afternoon, and there is a picture on Cliff Compton's Twitter of him like 50 yards back taking a picture of me waiting in the CM Punk line with a Cliff Compton t-shirt on. <laughs> He's like, yeah, it's great to see a fan in Chicago. And uh, that is a story that I've never expressed publicly before, because why would I tell people that at one point I owned a Cliff Compton t-shirt? I mean, yeah, but you, you, you got featured on cliff compton's twitter account at that age so i mean you, you take the good with the bad there yeah now it's like he's just like i think he's a gun guy now it's really uh, dark hours for mr 1859 but i think you asked me if i was aware of who chris hero was and i just told you a very personal life story of mine 
we could get into the observer notes. Basically, he was cut uh, partially because they didn't think he could get into shape, and partially, as we saw in his second NXT run, they just didn't look at him as a guy. And I don't, un- I didn't understand it then. I don't understand it now. And in a way, I think wrestling's better off now that he's out of that system. But it sucks because I think he's one of the most talented wrestlers ever. Yeah, and it was one of those things that his first run, he was around and he was featured, but it was one of those things that whenever you saw like a hero match or an Oyo match, you kind of have been like, oh yeah, that they actually decided to pull him out of the mothballs. They, they actually decided, because I remember like his last match was against uh, Luke Harper, Brody Lee in NXT. I remember like that happening. And also there was a one night uh, of the Kings of Wrestling reuniting against CM Punk, and I think it was Seth Rollins yes. that made a DVD much later, but... It just was something that, like, you would think that someone like Chris Hero, and I think this is now something you can say throughout wrestling now that he's out of the system again, you would find a place for someone like Chris Hero in your locker room, in your office somewhere, but WWE never showed that interest. Yeah, or in their multi-million dollar training facility where you have a guy that has trained every style under the sun, maybe you would want him influencing the next generation of talent. Just a thought. Yeah, just a thought. Uh, by the way, I did just go to Cliff Compton's Instagram account. He has a f- picture of Brody Lee, and it is Brody Lee wearing the really cool Blood Warriors t-shirt <laughs> with uh, Brody Jr. negative one. That's solid, yeah. Uh, his Twitter banner is Evil Knievel, K- Knievel jumping at Caesar's Palace, which is objectively cool. Uh, maybe I might get back into Cliff Compton, because I that dude... You know, he's a rich a Rip Rogers descendant, which is obviously a bummer, but very entertaining podcast guest. Just at times hit my sense of humor to a T. Unlike this Freedom Fight show, which was not funny, nor was it particularly good at times. And Mike, with that, I am ready to get into Freedom Fight 2013. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, "Ah, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy Slab Packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. I was able to open an Arena Club slab pack, and and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show, and there's a random innocuous brown bag of cards, and yeah, you can open it, and look, it's going to be junk. You're, you, you know what I mean? Like, you know what you're probably going to get in those. Maybe you find that fun, and sometimes I do. Sometimes I like just opening up cards and saying, oh, hey, look at some random cards or whatever. But if you're really in this game to to find value and find particular cards, it sucks to have to buy these mystery packs, and it ends up being, you know, almost nothing. You know, nothing of value. Not with Arena Club. You can display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading. So you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good. And Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your polls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling, and you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, 
and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, I've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net for 10% off your first purchase on Arena Club. And we thank them for sponsoring the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. Yeah, let's get into this. So, as I said at the top, Freedom Fight 2013 happened on November 17th from the Curse Brooklyn Lyceum. And we open up with John Davis versus Stephen Walters. John Davis won in 10 minutes and 23 seconds with a lariat. And, Case, take a guess what my first note for this match was. Bad? Oh, I wrote down, God, this venue sucks. I, I have down my first note is, it's honestly so dark, it's distracting. Yeah, so we get our second and last dose of FTR hair here. And I have a note here that I kind of like sums up here. He worked for 2013-2014, Dragon Gate USA, and Evolve. But this guy would have never sniffed the ring with how he wrestles in 2009 Dragon Gate USA, right? No, no. he. I mean, he would have fit in with the grapple fuck evolve style that's about eight months down the line right after the, the conclusion of Dragon Gate USA. But he, I mean, he doesn't make a fray match on one of the first few Dragon Gate USA shows. There's no way. Right, yeah. And I guess in this match, my big takeaway, and this is like one of the big overall questions we've had in the series case is, what is the goal with John Davis? Well, Mike, I'll let you know right now, this is the final John Davis match in Dragon Gate USA history. Wow. Okay. He, that's going to be a farewell to talk about. Well, yeah, I, I want to I, I save the John Davis talk, of course, on-air production meeting here. I, let's, let's talk about John Davis once we're done with the series, because I really Wrap think episode. It, his, his whole run, I don't want to cram it into this episode. I really think that's something to spend some time with. As mm-hmm. for the match... I mean, what, what's the point of it? You know, it's not a complete squash match because Walters gets in some offense. It's not really enough to make Walters look like a threat, but it is enough to make John Davis look vulnerable, so it does nobody any favors. I just I just hated this match. I went two and a quarter on it just because I wanted it off my TV. You know, uh, I like the first uh, Stephen Walters fire up a house of fire that he did that ended with the... Uh, he did a really good line salt. Like, I don't know how he became such a bad flyer. I guess it's WWE getting older and all that. But, like, you had one good House of Fire spot. But, like, with all John Davis matches at this era, goes on way too long. I was two and a half just because I liked that House of Fire. But it just was long. And as you said, just did not serve anyone's purpose here. Like, this is a match that objectionably, like, the last time we see both these guys, doesn't need to be on the show. This show, which is three hours and 45 minutes. We did not say that yet. This show... I believe will be the longest show in DGUSA history. If not the longest, it's certainly in the top five. And it's just, yeah, it's pointless. It is a pointless match. And it's frustrating to think that, again, you want to talk about this premium product. 
this is not the type of match that makes even a 2011 Dragon Gate USA show. You know, forget the glory period of those first four or five shows. This doesn't make the show in 2011. And it's just a match to have a match. And speaking about that, the next match, Mark Angelicetti, Mr. Touchdown, defeats Jervis Cottonbelly in t- three minutes and 41 seconds with a spine buster. Again, premium content. Why is this happening? Well, yeah, I mean, you could say why is this happening about any Jervis Cottonbelly match. Luckily, we do get Mr. Touchdown who kills him, and it's a it's a good squash Rules. match. Yeah, no, that Touchdown, God, I... I I wish he was coming along now because I think he would have crushed it in the dark environment. And I think that gimmick could have been refined to work as a, a an undercard act on Dynamite because he was such a talented wrestler. And this was at least a proper squash where a touchdown comes away from it looking like a beast. So, you know, a little average two and a half star match. Right. Yeah. And you like look at it and we talked about this last week. This gimmick is a gimmick that unlike a lot of car things where you would want to move away from it soon. I mean, American football, there's longevity there that you could constantly be making references, refining the act. Like, there was a lot of comments here about Tim Tebow that worked in 2013. You could be talking about Patrick Mahomes or Touchdown Tom now. So, I mean, like, there's a lot of ways you could have gone with this act. We miss you, Mr. Touchdown. And if you came back to wrestling, I'd be very excited. Yeah, it would be. I, I would welcome it because I really, really think he's a talented wrestler. And I, I would, would have liked to have seen another version of his career. Absolutely, absolutely. So before this next match, talking about how long the show is, and Kay's mentioned earlier about how they just did the, they just took the iPay-Per-View dump and just put another uh, portion of the website. So they left in the interstitials, which you had poor uh, poor Lenny, poor Lenny. (laughs) He was shilling, and there was tech issues, and how long is this delay? And he, someone like was like going to ring the bell for him, and you could hear him off mic say. Hey, the bell somewhere over on their side. Not Lenny Leonard's a saint. L- l- like you will not hear a crossword about Lenny Leonard come out of my mouth. But boy, I feel for him in this show. Uh, I feel for him in this promotion. It's just inexcusable production. I would be embarrassed to promote this to anybody. And at this point, you know, again, like I said last week, there's times where you can tell that Gabe is really invested in this product. And there are times where you can tell that he's not, and this is a point where Gabe feels really checked out. I mean, this is a show where he's checked out and then not checked out at certain points, <laughs> but you can tell oh, it's kind of wild. Yeah, but I, I, ha- I hated the start to this show. Two unimportant squash matches followed by a really long production delay. And then we had Chuck Taylor versus Jimmy Susumu. Jimmy Susumu got the win at the Mugen in 10 minutes and 46 seconds, and... I wonder what your thoughts are on this match, Kay. So you go first. I mean, it was kind of cool to see Susumu doing outright comedy stuff. Like, he plays along with the grenade spot where they do the atomic drop. I, there, there's kind of two things to note here. One, I really, in a weird way, think it's a showcase of Susumu's talents because even this dumb, goofy comedy match, he is in complete control of the crowd. I mean, they're into this by the end of it, and it's all just because Susumu is a master of what he does, but what stood out to me is if this match happens, even Miami 2012 WrestleMania weekend or any time before that, an outright comedy match like this would feel wildly out of place, but this is where you start to see the tone in indie wrestling change, 
and it's less about your Davy Richards and your Eddie Edwards, and you know Gabe is able to kind of seclude himself to uh, from it to an extent with the grapple fuck stuff that's coming down the line. But this is where you know Beyond is doing comedy, and guys are looking for an outlet outside of Chikara, and this match almost feels inappropriate on a Dragon Gate USA show. It's very WrestleCon. Very WrestleCon. And, like, there, there was a whole bit about Chuck Taylor wearing a hoodie to the ring, one, because his building looked like it was freezing, and two, because he wanted to protect himself from the lariats, which was kind of funny, and then they had a whole battle about that, and it's it turned into, like, a really, like, the last five minutes of the match when they dropped all the comedy pretenses was just solid DGUSA stuff. It just was, you had the five minutes of comedy, which, as you said, this is kind of very much the start. I mean... The Syrian portal kind of started meme wrestling, if you think about it, with the most illegal thing you could do in a wrestling match. But I wanted to like this a lot more than I did, but I think the comedy stuff just brought it down. It was a very apathetic three and a quarter for me. Who on this roster would have been better suited to wrestle Susumu rather than Chuck Taylor? Because at this point, it's November of 2013. Chuck Taylor's not getting sent over to Japan anytime soon. He doesn't want to be there. The Drangate talent doesn't want him there. Is there someone on this show that you think would have really benefited from wrestling Susumu instead of Chuck Taylor? Mr. Touchdown. Yeah, I think Touchdown or John Davis, because they never, I don't think they ever had any interactions, but those are the, I mean, they're they're in a useless match, and they, I you know, you can always stick Chuck Taylor in there against Jervis or Steven Walters, but it seems like this was the least interesting option to do. Yeah, and Tony Nese had the match against Susumu the night before. As we've seen in current day, there's few things, there are few wrestlers in the world that are better at elevating young talent than Susumu Yokosuka. Put him in there with someone that's on on the rise, and you could have like a great match out of it. Like imagine Mr. Touchdown versus uh, Susumu Yokosuka. I think that could be a sneaky four star match. Well, the other two you've got here because they're kind of buried in this tag match, but Andrew Everett, where. You know, Everett's an incredibly flawed wrestler who I don't think ever lived up to his potential. Sorry to weirdly bury Andrew Everett there, but... You're fair, though. That's fair. An Everett versus Susumu match at this time would have been the prototype for Susumu versus Flamita, which came a few months down the road. I mean, you know, Everett's, in a sense, a, a poor man's Flamita. Or you could have done Susumu versus Conley, who they're clearly building up and who, at you know... It's night and day. As soon as he stops teaming with Scott Reed, Caleb Conley finds something and it clicks with him. And I think those would have been much more interesting matchups than what they did with Chuck Taylor. Oh, I am absolutely with you on that. And it's just kind of like a shame and something that, again, I kind of want to pen on it because I feel like there's a lot of kind of interesting topics to talk about like this last year of Dragon Gate USA. And I think Susumu is very much like a symptom of that. Like... If you're as checked out as if you're more dialed into the product and you're more like this, wouldn't you want to have Susumu in a match where he can elevate young talent and not have a 10 minute comedy match of Chuck Taylor? I would. Yeah, I think it even in a loss, it would have done Caleb Conley a lot of good. Andrew Everett at this point, I don't think he had had any knee injury, so he would have been able to fly around and have Susumu base for him. It's just, you know, you're three matches into the show, you've seen two useless squash matches. And then this is a match with Dragon Gate talent, and you still go like, oh, that was it? Well, I guess that's fine. I mean, God, what else is on this show? Well, what's else on this showcase? Well, we have a non-title three-way elimination tag team match. It was the Bravado Brothers, the Open the United Gate champions, 
versus Andrew Everett and Caleb Conley versus Chikara Sekigun of Fire Ant and Jigsaw. The two falls in this match was Jigsaw eliminating Everett and Conley with a quick roll-up on Everett, and then the final fall was the gentleman's agreement on Fire Ant in, 10 min- in 14 minutes. I thought it was shorter than that. 14 minutes and 3 seconds. I will say this up top. I am unironically into this Bravado Brothers thing right now. It works really well. Like, I was not as high on the title switch here, but in this act and on this show, they come across like stars. The heat that they got during their entrance is unbelievable because these are just dead Drangit USA Brooklyn crowds. They don't care. They're not invested in anything. The Bravado Brothers come out and they care about hating the Bravado Brothers in it. (laughs) You know, I mean, every week since March, Mike and I have watched a Drangit USA show a lot of the stuff doesn't blend together, but you just see a lot of the same thing. The Bravados thing feels totally different than the scene or the DUF or any of the Blood Warriors heel stuff. Like, this is a new act in the promotion, and I really... And it could change in the last four shows we have to watch, but for now, I really <laughs> like it. And it's something that, with how everything is changing... With like a heel act like the Bravados, which is very much a we hate you, get out, get out of our promotion kind of he kind of bolsters a very weak tag division if you think about it. Like this is not the 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 whole United uh tournament weekend where you had where you had four great tag teams here and then you had other people that you could always justify, like, okay, well, you know, it's uh Yoshino and Ricochet, they're currently champions. We can go set up something for that. Or it's not like Shima and AR Fox where it's like all right you could go have a solid match on a very bad show it's you know you have the Bravado brothers and then the Young Bucks are on their way out and that's kind of it yeah and I guess you know after this match Jigsaw turns on Fire Ant so if we extend the life of Dragon Gate USA a year let's say we do that you're going to have the Bravados some form of a Caleb Conley tag team, whether he's teaming with Everett or he's teaming with the soon-to-be premier athlete brand and probably Trent out of that team, not Anthony Nice. Uh, let's give them T-Hawk and, and Ata or some Millennials combination. Let's give them Jigsaw and The Shard, who teamed uh, on, an, on Evolve shows together. Some combination of Fire Ant and somebody else. I mean, it's an interesting division. You're right, it's not exactly you know, Doi and Ricochet and Shima and Dragon Kid and Pac and Yoshino, but it's, I'm I'm kind of into that idea. I would have liked to have seen that play out because even this match, like I thought it was a really good match. I, I really enjoyed the sprinty style from Everett and Conley and Fire Ant and Jigsaw and then the Bravado Brothers, again, just kind of knowing their role and playing it well. Yeah, I went three and a half stars on this. I really enjoyed Passed this. Tonight. Yes, I'm, I'm same boat. I really liked the, the Carolina Boys tag team. Like Everett and Conley, they worked at like in this kind of thing. Like I would want them to have them in this, in this perspective, like 2014, 2015 Dragon Gate USA, uh, tagging division as baby faces, kind of like a young pistols. Like that's how they kind of felt like to me in this match. The Everett and Conley tag team was interesting because this is really the rebirth of the Southern Indies because, you know, you had your wild side stuff at the start of the century and then things go dark for a little bit. And Conley's a, a Carolina guy who was working at a PWX. Andrew Everett is 
kind of a homegrown CWF from an Atlanta guy, if I'm not mistaken, who was working a CZ. He's from Burlington. Yeah, yeah. Okay. He's from Burlington. I mean, he was working a CZW and beyond and Chikara as Chiva kid at the time, but he unmasked and begins working as Everett. And then we're a few months out from the infamous PWG three-way with Conley, or I'm sorry, not with Conley, but with Everett, Cedric Alexander, and Trevor Lee. And from there, you know, it's a slow and steady rise for the Southern Indies. And, I, you know, this is certainly not the podcast to talk about the, the Southern <laughs> independence scene for a number of reasons. But it's interesting just to pinpoint that in the timeline of like, here are two guys from the South coming in and making a name in a Gabe Sapolsky promotion, which did not happen often. So I, I'm with you. I went three and a half. I really liked what they did here. And, and just to not not go too long on this analogy or the, this train of thought here, but... Before that, you would have the Atlanta guys of AR Fox and UHA Nation as well. Yes, that's a good point. So yet all that, uh, Case mentioned about this. Jigsaw turns on fire in post-match. He cuts a promo on a dead mic. Thanks, Gabe. Dead mic in the Brooklyn Lyceum. Uh, uh, but just, luckily, oh, hold the- on. We, we can't gloss over this. Jigsaw turns heel, grabs a microphone, and we cannot hear what he says. It's not even microphone feedback. It, the microphone is off. It's a dead mic. Humiliating. I, I just, I I mean, God, like I paid for this show and I don't remember being annoyed about it then, but I am so annoyed now. I just, oh God, it's so bad. And to not have a backstage insert with him, I don't know, maybe reiterating his point. Like, it's just all so lazy. Yeah. And I mean, like the one thing I'll say positive about Brooklyn Lycia, Lyceum, the sound bounced off all the walls because it was brick and all the sound just was reflected back. So you could hear him even though – because the crowd realized, oh, wait, the mic's dead. We're going to be quiet. And he was able to project, and other people later were able to project for that. But it just was such a defeating thing to see. It's just one of those things. It's like, wow, we've really got to this point. Like imagine what Susumu and and Masaki Mochizuki said when they came back to Japan about this weekend. Oh, I mean, I just I, – I would have been embarrassed to have Mochizuki in particular on this show. That's no discredit to Susumu, but just to fly Mochizuki across the world to have him wrestle here, of course he never comes back. Like, are you kidding me? I, I wouldn't either. It's just really, really sad and depressing. Uh, we didn't mention this in the match, but before the match, uh, Larry Dallas and Trey Michaels come out with two scene t-shirts, not just trying to recruit Caleb Conley, but they're trying to recruit – both Conley and Everett. Conley attacks Larry Dallas, and they're not to be seen again for the rest of the show. Conley gave him a good slap. That that had good sound. That looked like it hurt. Yeah, I mean, the sound in, in the Brooklyn Lyceum, the one thing I'll say as a positive is the sound carries there. I get where Gabe was like, oh, yeah, the Fight Club idea. Because as we get into like further matches on the show, the sound reverberated really well. So I totally understand that. Which is funny because I kind of thought the next match was hurt by a dead crowd. Yeah, so the next match was Anthony Nice versus Ricochet. Anthony Nice won with a 450 splash in 19 minutes and 41 seconds. It was a really slow opening to start. Yeah, this is the kind of match that I associate late era Drangate USA with, where it is a really long match that isn't bad but also, like, struggles to be good at times. And this match got there. By the end of this match, I was really into it. But a really slow start in front of a crowd that just never really gave them anything. And by the end of it, it's, it's you know, it's 20 minutes later. 
and Nice ends up low-blowing Ricochet and then getting the win with a 450. And it just, it took too long to get there. I mean, I, I, I what did you give this star rating-wise? I ended up giving it three and a half because it got to a place where I thought it was very good, but it was just so very slow. And then you had a finish that you've been, Anthony Nice has been beating people clean. But the thing is that before the 450, there is a distraction from Mr. Ray, and then uh, Anthony Nice hits the low blow and then hits a 450 splash. So it just kind of like brought it down. Like the one thing that I also have as like Travis match, Ricochet cannot throw a good kick to save his life. Has he thrown a good kick in his entire career? Because I don't remember a single one. Uh his kicks didn't stand out to me one way or another here. I don't mind his offense. I kind of think when he's on, he does everything well, but that is a common complaint among some people. So I, I think there is legitimacy to that argument. What I wanted to ask you was about the booking of Drangate USA, which it really feels like we haven't discussed long-term booking plans on this show in a while, just because there's none to speak of. I mean, it's just just match after match after match with these weird angles that don't get over in between. But with Anthony Nice, he comes back to this promotion. He wins the six-way match at Open the Ultimate Gate. He wins at Mercury Rising. He goes to the Evolve Triple Shot in Florida, where he beats Samurai Del Sol in a singles match, then beats the Young Bucks in a tag team match, and then comes back to Drangate USA and beats Tozawa, Uha, and Susumu and now Ricochet. But if you notice, the next main event is not Johnny Gargano versus Anthony Nice. It's Johnny Gargano versus Trent Beretta. And then they end up doing Gargano versus Roderick Strong, which we'll talk about in two weeks. But they're clearly building Ricochet up for the WrestleMania weekend main event. Why is Ricochet either not winning here to get himself a big win going into that match, or why is it that Nice is not challenging Gargano for the title after this? Because realistically, who else does Nice have to beat in this promotion? It's literally like Swan and Gargano are the two guys that he hasn't beat. It's just, it's a lack of attention to detail. And it's one of those things like that you had the AR Fox thing that you set up on a DGUSA show and you blew it off at Evolve. Like the next, the next show. Like there was like no build towards it for something that was supposed to feel like a big moment. And it makes you wonder, like, what were, like, the long-term plans for Nice? Because it does not feel like there were ones, but other than keep Anthony Nice looking strong. And I think the act is great. Like, we've we've been on since he's returned and been like, okay, the Premier Athlete brand actually feels like a good thing right here. But you don't – and, like, Ricochet taking a loss here when, he, when it's clearly at this time. Like, even if we didn't already know, we would know, okay, obviously Gargano and Ricochet is the next big match. Why is Ricochet picking up a loss here, even though it's not a clean loss? Like, I guess that's the one thing is, like, oh, Nice had to cheat to win. But you're still kind of going, like, what are you... It just really feels like that the situation with Ginky Horiguchi kind of completely just tilted Gabe, and he just kind of threw together some matches and some finishes in some ways. Yeah, I guess I can buy the, oh, well, he didn't lose clean, but I think that's a dumb line of thinking on the Drangate USA show. Like, that's just not what this promotion does it just have just have ricochet beat him because nice on the ne- next show is wrestling rich swan which that kind of answers my question of what else is left for nice well now he can at least wrestle swan just have ricochet beat him who cares nice can get his heat back later like i just it, it irrationally annoyed me but this show was really easy to easy to pick apart because there was just there were a lot of flaws on the show but i think gabe was kind of booking nice 
like he was afraid that he could leave at any moment. And and I would get that, but this is before the big NXT signing period. No, you know? I, I, I will I will talk about contracts uh, a lot coming up later on the show. I think in our next match, I want to talk about contracts, and then a little bit later on. But he booked Nice. You know, have you ever heard that Gabe was always afraid to push Vornell Walker and Ring of Honor because he was afraid as soon as he would push him, he would get signed. Yeah, I, I remember hearing that and completely like to pause that at the back of my brain until you brought it back up again, which is just as perplexing as as not pushing Nice. Well, look, well, he's pushing Nice, but I think he's afraid to commit to anything with him with this idea that he could be gone at any moment. And don't you disparage Vordell Walker, okay? There is a uh, very passionate Vordell Walker fan base out there. He was nominated and I believe voted for by a few people in the 2016 Greatest Wrestler Ever project. I mean, a lot of people can vote. <laughs> what about this next match, Mike? Well, before that, I want to talk about, like, talk about the dead Mike there. Nice tries to cut another promo, which I was getting excited because I thought we we're going to get another Buckley. Hey. And then him just, like, <laughs> calling himself the best fucking wrestler ever, which pops me each time. Instead, he noticed that the mic was dead, and he just decided to pose, which is great. I, I am blown away by just how good Nice and the whole Premier Athlete brand is at this time. I had no recollection of them being as talented as they were. And then we, was this where we had like the 20 minutes of intermission that was not cut out? That is correct. I did. So 20 minutes of the same uh, 30 second video clip being shown. This is before the China trip. Like sadly, we do not have the Dustin promo or the China clip to watch and repeat here. We just had 30 seconds so that I quickly was like, oh, this is intermission. I'll go fast forward 15 minutes and another five. But we come back from intermission from for Rich Swan defeating Trent in 19 minutes and 54 seconds with a second rope Phoenix splash. And it's interesting now, like talking about like show to show booking. Remember how strong Trent was booked up through the Enter the Dragon, the fourth anniversary showcase? Kind of now backburnered. Well, I mean, let's think about that for a second. He he wrestled John Davis at Ultimate Gate in his debut, and he he lost that match, I believe. And then, mm-hmm. yes, he wrestled Ata. Well, he, uh, yeah, he wrestled Ata and destroyed him. Um, and then had the weird three matches with Ar Fox, where he's booked very strong. So yeah, so he he has been booked very strong up to this point. And then he he takes the fall here. What do you think about this match? I really liked it. Yes. I, I, I'm just going to throw my star rating out here, and you can probably say, like, okay, Mike, you're off your rocker here. Four and a quarter stars. I have no complaints. You're a little bit higher on it than me, but I, I will say this. So, one, this was a rematch of the FIP Dangerous Intention show from October 11th, 2013, which, I mean, my God, this card looks like a special kind of awful semi-main event, evening gown match, Jessica Havoc defeats Maxwell Chicago. But I remember at one point ordering this show because Gabe put the main event of Trent versus Swan for the FIP title over so hard as this just ridiculous display of athleticism. You've got to see the chemistry these two guys have. So Gabe booked the rematch on the Dragon Gate USA show where uh, not many more people would see it, but a few more people would see it compared to what FIP was doing at the time. And I said in my notes after this match, if I had any stroke in the professional wrestling industry, 
I would have offered Rich Swan a full-time television contract after watching him work in this match because I think this is as complete and all-around an elite performance as we've seen from Rich Swan, and I've been high on him the entire time. This was his effort was second to none in this match. Yeah, and Gabe wasn't wrong about the chemistry these two guys had. Like it just flew and it worked. It had a level of brutality and then sprint periods that flowed really well together, considering the fact that Trent at this point has been really on the Indies for the first time ever in his career for like the last seven months. And you know, Rich Swan, I think at this time is still like twenty two, like just insanely young at this point. And it just like worked and like they would have like these really brutal moves and then Swan would make a comeback and then you would have other things happen. Like the finishing stretch here might be one of my favorite finishing stretches on the shows that we've done recently, just because it starts with an insane half Nelson uh, apron suplex where Swan takes it on his neck and then springs off it and then takes another bump to the floor, which is insane. And just a very satisfying match that when I looked at like the runtime of this the show is like, okay, some matches are going to be really long and I don't like it, but this was a match that was 20 minutes long and didn't feel 20 minutes long at all. This is the type of match that if you even have this on a card in 2011, if you're running this in a BB Kings or one of the arena shows or any of the Midwest venues, I think Indy, Chicago, or Milwaukee, I think this gets looked at as kind of a late era classic, but you know, the crowd gets into this, but the atmosphere just doesn't allow for this to feel like an epic when it really should, because you mentioned the apron suplex spot where I don't know if Swan landed on his neck or if he landed on his face. I mean, he takes this this half and half completely over the top and then follows that up with on the top rope, Trent belly to belly suplexes him and Swan does a full 360 bump and to an extent it's cartoonish, but think about how much bigger Trent is than the rest of this roster. Like Trent is still a big, tall, muscular dude. And Swan kind of takes the appropriate bump off of it. Again, Swan is just on another planet in this match. And then he concludes with the middle rope Phoenix. I went four stars on the dot with the caveat that once Rich Swan would have walked to the back, I would have signed that man to a television contract immediately. Yeah, this was a really special match. And especially on a show that needed a special match. I completely agree. I mean, this is, it's just, it's like a, it's an effort four stars match because mm-hmm. I think had they had the same match but gone through the motions, it really wouldn't connect as well. But you could tell these guys were trying everything they could to turn this ship around. And to an extent, they did. Oh, absolutely. And they did the best that they could given the, the surroundings. And it was something that, like, you know, I hate this venue. And there's a lot of things I hate about it, but like hearing like the thud of Rich Swan bouncing around was one of those things that adds like an extra level brutality here. That I hate the Broken Lyceum. It's one of my least favorite venues I've ever seen in wrestling, but it worked in this place. Yeah, this was encroaching on the Fight Club atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And speaking about the man that the Fight Club atmosphere was supposed to be based around, the semi-main event of the show was the Young Bucks defeating AR Fox and one of the five best wrestlers of all time, Masaki Mochizuki, in 15 minutes and 11 seconds with a more bang for your buck on AR Fox. This is the final time we will see the Young Bucks in Drangate USA. Your thoughts on that, Mike? 
Well, hell yeah, brothers. You, 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 you left that territory and you got put over clean. <laughs> so they end up, they work the January triple shot and evolve, which we'll talk about next week for a number of reasons. Uh, but yeah, their final match in Dragon at USA, they go over, they win the feud against AR Fox, which was the ladder match fray at WrestleMania weekend. The Nick Jackson versus AR Fox evolved title match. Uh, at Evolve 21, I believe, the Gate to Heaven match, and now this one, I gotta say, a pretty good feud, and the Akira Tozawa match from Heat. Yeah, yeah, it's a very good feud, and it's something with, like, Fox, like, I don't know how much we talked about it when he did his tour of Japan, he was put into Team Veteran because they thought he looked old, and him and Mochizuki were a great team here, like, like they flowed really well, it's fun having... Mochizuki with a young guy as his partner is always a blast because you get Mochizuki kind of directing traffic and then Air Fox does nuts things and Masaki Mochizuki proceeds to kick the young bucks a lot. I will say on this show that featured Johnny Gargano, Chris Hero, Masaki Mochizuki, Rich Swan, Ricochet, Anthony Nice, whoever you want to mention, in terms of just singular performances, I thought the young bucks were far and away the most talented guys on this show. And, and it's something that, like, you, we know that they're on their their way out, and we know that there is a level of heat there that bubbles oil over on that Evolve Weekend that when we get to it. But they understand, like, of course they've worked Mokuzuki, they've worked Fox, and they kind of, like, understand, like, how we're going to put this together in a way. It's like, oh, I have an idea. What we'll do is, like, Mochizuki is someone that should be able to see kicks coming, so he's going to duck two enziguris and get an ankle lock, and we're just going to power through it. And it just was a another strong Young Bucks match. I mean, this is not one of the 50 best Young Buck matches of all time, which is kind of wild to say, but still a four-stars Young Bucks match. I'm at four and a quarter. I thought it was great, and I probably bumped it up a quarter star just because AR Fox at one point does a dive over the top rope, over the post, over the barricade, into the front row, and I just couldn't believe he did that in this venue of all places. I mean, that was a, even for AR Fox <laughs> standards, that was a nutty spot. <laughs> it's not a Davy dive. This is his own singular dive. And the thing is that the side that he, he did it on was the side that was like right up against the wall too. It, it, so he so, could have so clipped the wall. Things, so many things could have gone wrong, Mike. It is insane that he did what he did, but I'm glad he did it. And yeah, I thought that, I mean, I, four and a quarter stars. I thought this was outstanding. And now we get to the significant talking portion of the show. Uh, I have almost a full page on college-ruled loose-leaf paper uh, that I've written down for this. First, that they say that the Young Bucks grab the microphone. Now they have a working microphone, which is important for the next segment. And they call—it's not exactly working, I should say. Like it, it like has some horrible feedbacks unless people are standing exactly still, as Chris Hero found out later. But the Young Bucks call this Bush League, and they say that they're the best tag team in the world, and they refute— that 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 this is their last weekend. They say that they'll be back. They say that they want to have a rematch with the Bravado Brothers. The Bravado Brothers come out with the titles. The the Bravado said, "Yeah, we do, but we want to have respect. You've known us for a while, but you've never given us respect. If you shake our hand right here, and of course this is the Bucks after the handshake gate, we will do the match here. But as soon as the Bucks went in for the handshake, they went a low blow, and then they attacked them. They give I I, I think it was Nick got the gentleman's agreement, and then said, "Fuck the rematch and leave." to probably the biggest heat of the show. It is, in a vacuum, a really good angle because the Bravado Brothers, like I've been saying, get genuine heat and are kind of awesome at embracing it. 
The problem is that this was like a five to seven minute angle that precedes the longest talking segment in Drangit USA history. And this is a show that started at, I believe, nine o'clock Eastern time. And we're two hours in at this point. And now they're doing 35 minutes worth of talking back to back. Yep. And it's, we'll get into this. It's time for a very special, I think it's the only time this has happened in a gay promotion. It's time for a roast case. The roast of Johnny Gargano, this was announced two days before the show, a day before the the Queen show, where Gargano sent in a promo and said to celebrate two years of holding the title, he wanted to have the Drangit USA roster roast him. He invited Masaki Mochizuki the night before. Mochizuki uh, did not know what a roast was. He invited Barack Obama. Obama did not show up. Uh, once again, the Barack Obama cares about me joke popped me. Good for Johnny Gargano. That was a dumb line that made me laugh twice. What are your thoughts on the roast? Because I kind of have a bigger picture point I want to make, but just I want your thoughts on the segment first. So, one, Lenny, the MVP, out there the entire time going to fans, including one of the most insane-looking <laughs> fans I've ever seen, <laughs> who they pointed out originally. And I, and I quoted the fan because he had a great line here because they first went the fans in with the roster, and then the, the fan said, he's gone through two, he, two years of hell with Gargano. And then someone make, made a comment about how his mom cuts Gargano's hair. Gargano had a good quip about saying, hey, my mom's a licensed beautician. Good line. So, it, it, good, th- good this segment line. was frustrating because it reminded me that Johnny Gargano is a super funny and charismatic person who is not allowed to be funny or charismatic in the WWE universe. Well, he's just embraced being a Marvel just edgelord. Ugh, so, I mean, that's God. the problem there. That's, that, but, that, that is a problem. And, and then you had Ronan and Ricochet come out, Chuck Taylor calling him an embarrassment, and then Rich, and then Ricochet come out here just being angry that he hasn't had his title shot yet and just completely just doing angry... A petty veteran Ricochet promo, which is his better side. Why has no one really embraced a good heel run for Ricochet? I never know. And then Rich Swamper comes out with guitar and does holding out for a hero. And then he adds in Chris Hero into that thing, which infuriates Jai Gargano. Uh, very, very long. Very awkward to have this before a long main event. And, I mean, this is just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. Well, not when we get down to it, not only does Swan do holding out for a hero, he then does, I, I will call it a borderline homophobic. I don't want to directly give that notion to Rich Swan, but it was questionable even for 2013 standards. A borderline homophobic version of Nutshell by Allison Chains <laughs> directing all of his hate towards Johnny Gargano, which was a fascinating choice of song by Rich Swan. Uh, and then I didn't think Rich Swan would be a grunge guy. I believe this is the Sammy Callahan influence coming into play. Possibly. Uh, I, I guess I shouldn't say that, but I, I yeah, Swan busting out an Allison Chains. I mean, it was a hit, but it wasn't that big of a hit. It, I had to kind of, it took me a minute to figure out what song he was doing. And I am certainly not an Allison Chains fan, but I figured it out. You also, I, I should also mention John Davis comes out to attack I guess Rich Swan at some point, but then Swan fights him off and they go to the back, but we never see the payoff of that angle as John Davis has never seen again in Drangit USA. Case, I didn't notice that I was John Davis. I just thought that Rich Swan did a tope on hello on someone. Okay, very funny you mentioned that. I had to rewind three separate times to figure out who it was. I thought I was just being dumb, but yeah, it was John Davis 
but you know, Lenny's in the ring. He can't do commentary and say that's John Davis. And the venue is so dark that you can't tell it's John Davis. It's just, oh my God, this whole, such a disaster. The, the point that I will make about this in defense of this segment is that ever since Gargano turned heel, and you've seen it with his in-ring promos, uh, the the taped promos that are online that I've watched, it is very clear that Gabe was preparing Johnny Gargano to be a TV-ready wrestler. And I think if Gabe would have had his way, Gargano would have been signed WrestleMania weekend 2014, what ended up being the last Dragon Gate USA show. I think if Gabe had his way, that would have been the last time that he booked Gargano because it really takes Johnny another year or so to kind of refine his footing and evolve. And because he just, he hasn't, I mean, he beat everybody. He, he had a, a two and a half year title run. He should have exited the territory at that point. And I think Gabe was doing everything in his power to get him to that point. So was the segment good? No. Was it a good idea? I don't hate it. I understand why Gabe would try to do it. And especially from the perspective of trying to develop Johnny Gargano as a, as a performer, I, I don't like the segment, but I really can't knock it too much. Yeah. It, it, it's one of those things that it's superfluous. It's something that I would not have had on a three hour and 45 minute show, but I get this thing in case you've been saying this for like the last month that you could tell that he's preparing Johnny Gargano for this. And this is one of the things that, Gabe is dialed in for Johnny Gargano and then the Chris here in the main event here. Like he has the things he's interested in. It's just very clear that two thirds of the show he's not. Yeah. And you know, I, I, I mean, people have always said, you know, Gabe's flavor of the month guys. And it's weird to think that Gargano at this point has been in the promotion for four and a half years and has kind of been the consistent flavor of the month. I mean, Gabe clearly saw something in him from like 2010 onwards and, uh, I, you know, I, I've really enjoyed his heel work. I, I talked a lot during the first year of his title run about how disappointed I was with him as a champion. This stuff I've loved. Ever since he turned on Shingo, I've been a huge fan. And and this segment, you know, it's just, again, it's not a great segment, but I try to look at Gabe's perspective on the Bravados and on, Gar- on, and on Gargano. And when I think about it like that, I, I really can't knock it too much. No, and I think that's entirely fair when you put it in that context. Then we get to the main event. It is for the Open, the Freedom Gate Championship. It is Johnny Gargano defeating Chris Hero by referee submission as Chris Hero goes out in the Gargano escape in 25 minutes and 37 seconds. This is a long match with a lot of drama. It starts hot. It finishes hot. I think there's a a minor lull in the middle. You know, I think it's a, a pretty good match all the way through, but there are times where it's certainly hotter than in other moments of the match. But ultimately, Hero comes back, and after working the Hurricane the night before at Pro Wrestling Syndicate, he has his first real match back on the Indies. And he clearly doesn't have his wind. He doesn't have the 30-minute match stamina, which is why things slow down a little bit. But my God, it's Chris Hero, and he delivers in the big moment. And I think this is something that I, he, he went through a lot of crap on the show, but Lenny on the call here bringing up the fact that, you know, Chris Hero hasn't been having these kind of matches for several years now. 
Johnny Gargano could take him in deep and we could see what Chris Hero, what his wins like. And and they played and through the commentary, it played it off very well. And it was very logical in a way that I actually really enjoyed. Yeah, and it's a really interesting match from a structure standpoint where they start off where Gargano kind of pie faces Hero and Hero hits him with a big boot and gets a two and a half count that the crowd totally buys as being a finish. That maybe it was going to be a Nash Backlund situation where Hero in the snap of the fingers ends this two two year long title run. And then, you know, obviously things continue from there for another half hour. The big spot in this match is Gargano setting and delivering the pedigree to Chris Hero, which Chris Hero kicks out at one of. This is notable because it was uh, later revealed to Chris Hero in a story that he told on the Kevin Steen show, where after this spot, he heard that Lenny and Gabe high-fived each other at the commentary table, which is such a funny visual to think about. <laughs> I, I I can't see Gabe Sapolsky being a good hand-five. High-five. I always call it hand-five, I get made fun of it. High-five. Yeah, it's not, it's not a hand-five. That's not a thing. I know, but my brain wants me to say that's a hand five. It's a high five. I I love that, you know, at this point, Gabe's been around wrestling for 20 years, dating back to ECW, and arguably the corniest spot you could do, the Triple H pedigree parody, <laughs> which, which to, be fair, to be clear, came across awesome. It is an awesome spot where Hero kicks out of one of those pedigree, but just that that's the moment where Gabe's like, yes, <laughs> like, I, like, we nailed it. This is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, this is also a time before like people were really going hard on that kind of stuff with Triple H as like the head of the PC, the chief, uh, I think it was chief operating officer for a while. So like this was like it was new when this happened. So actually like that, that high five maybe was warranted. Well, it's I mean, it's an awesome spot because I pop forth, the crown goes nuts for it. And Hero, you know, shows this last moment of like, it's, is he going to win the Dragon USA title? Like, I guess it, it, it wouldn't be the craziest thing. Gargano's reign has to end at some point. And I remember watching this live and just being grossly invested in this match because, you know, you really didn't know what was going to happen. You buy into the early finish, you buy into the late finish. And then Gargano eventually submits him with the Gargano escape, but it is a worthwhile journey, a, a flawed match to a large degree, but it's Johnny Gargano and it's Chris Hero, and ultimately the good is going to outweigh the bad every single time. Yeah, and the one thing I'll say about this match is, and I haven't really felt this a lot with throughout the promotion, especially in the iPay-Per-View era, this is a match that I think watching live you probably come away with this thinking like, oh my God, this is a match of the year quality match, you know, just because of like Chris Hero comes in, he gets the flash 2.75 immediately. He, we, we should say that during his interest, he, the crowd goes insane for Chris Hero, like, and, and then the crowd is molten for the rest of this match. This has that fight club feel. And you have like this really compelling story about like, can he do this on his first real night back on the Indies? And it just is a awesome story. Uh, Johnny Gargano in this is not a passenger. He plays a great chicken shit heel at the right times and then is able to submit Chris Hero clean in his first big match back. I love the booking of it. I love the execution of it, despite, again, a slow period in the middle. Like I said, the good outweighs the bad, and I went four and a quarter on this match. That's exactly what I had there. And it's, you know, like this, it'll be interesting to say, do you think this is the last great DGUSA match that's like true DGUSA? Because I kind of feel like this is. No. There is 
Well, no, no, there's at least two more coming up that I know are legitimately great matches. Okay. It, it, it's one of those things that just kind of popped my mind while I was watching that I wanted to ask you. The post-match, Hero talks about psyching himself out there, and he, he does like a... He does the go home. The microphone shorts out on him constantly. And he's like, I guess I'll just stand right here and give this promo. He talks about not having his win back. And he talks about needing gold and how much he loves being back here. And he's like, I needed to get hit a couple times. I miss that feeling. And he says, I need to have gold. Gold Air Fox comes out and he says, anytime, any place. He then, Chris Hero, who was had his nose busted open. And I didn't, you, we couldn't see what did it because how dark it is. But he does this really... In 2021, I was like, oh, why are you doing this? Where he blows his bloody nose into his hand and tries to go for a handshake, but Air Fox goes, nah, we're going to fist bump. You have your blood on your hand. And leaves the ring, and then he says, and, and Chris Hero, being Chris Hero, just is just very just genuinely interesting promo person. And he uh, talks about needing a shower and thanks the crowd, and that's it for the longest show in DGUSA history. It's an exhausting one. I mean, if we were under the... Uh original idea for this promotion this premium wrestling product i think you lose the two squash matches at the beginning i think you i mean really the first three matches if you lose those which cuts out you know almost an hour from the show let's say this show begins with that bravados everton conley firing and jigsaw match and goes from there those are five really fun to great matches but as an eight-hour show, or I'm sorry, as an eight-match show that felt like eight hours at times, it's just an exhausting watch. I mean, it's a thumbs in the middle just off the idea of, like, I couldn't possibly recommend somebody sit through all of these matches. You, you can't. You, you absolutely cannot. And it's one of those things that there's a reason why most shows are under three hours. Because, like, Dragon Gate, the only, the only shows, they only have, like, Five shows a year that go longer than three hours. Everything else is between two hours and three hours. You you, you can't keep someone's attention for four hours. I remember going to Bola 2015, the one that uh, Zack Sabre Jr. won, and how exhausted I was at the end of night three because it was like a five-hour show. And you just can't put people through that, and you can't expect people to want to watch a three-and-a-half hour show or three hour four hour minute show unless it's like a big show unless it's your wrestle kingdom your wrestlemania your double or nothing your kobe world pro wrestling festival you just can't expect that and especially as like a way that you have 35 minutes talking in the middle of it the three matches that you talked about like you could cut a lot out of the show and get a solid two hour and 20 minute show and it have been great well i don't know what the runtime is for next week but i certainly hope it's shorter as we go into Revolt 2014 from the Queensboro Elks Lodge in Elmhurst, New York, a card that features Tim Donst versus Dick Strings, Chris Dickinson, Ivelisse versus Sue Young, Caleb Conley versus Yosuke Santa Maria, an open the United Gate match between the Bravados and Chuck Taylor and Orange Cassidy, Anthony Nice versus Rich Swan. A three-way match that I can't wait to figure out how they set up because it is Fire Ant, Shane Strickland, and Mr. A of the Premier Athlete brand. And then the show closes with an Evolve title match between A.R. Fox and Drew Gulak and an Open the Freedom Gate title match between Johnny Gargano and Trent Beretta. We'll have plenty of notes from Evolve next week as well as the Dragon Gate talent that was supposed to appear on this show but ended up pulling out for various reasons. 
and we will be entering the last calendar year of DGUSA. Uh, anything else you want to hit on before we got out of here? Four shows left, and then we are finally done with Dragon Gate USA. Four shows left, and we are done. So that will do it for this time and Open the Voice Gate. We'll be back as we kick off the final four shows of Dragon Gate USA as we go into 2014. For Case, I'm Mike. We'll catch you next time.